Genesis chapter 44. You're welcome to use one of the Bibles in the Purex in front of you. The passage is also printed in the worship guide. Genesis chapter 44. In recent weeks, we've been following this particular family. Uh, Joseph uh, is a son of Jacob. Joseph has 11 other brothers. And what happened was uh, the 11 other brothers sold Joseph into slavery. They considered killing him, but thought better of it, and instead uh, sold him into slavery in Egypt. The reason they did this is because they resented him. They were bitter toward him because Jacob, the father of these boys, favored Joseph. And Joseph, as we learned in Genesis chapter 37, probably allowed this favoritism to go to his head a bit too much and uh, was a tattletale and not so uh, great to be around all the time. And so they sell him into slavery, and we've been following with Joseph how God has been at work in his life, how God has been protecting him even through the very deep trials that he's been through. Uh, In recent weeks, we've come to this point where Joseph is now basically serving as the governor, if you will, of Egypt, and he's in charge of this food program. Uh, There's a famine in the land, a very severe famine, and so everybody's flocking to Egypt for food because Joseph had devised uh, this grand plan to store up food during the years of plenty before the famine, and the plan has worked to perfection. A couple of weeks ago, there was this ironic scene when uh, Joseph's brothers come to Egypt for food, and they stand before Joseph. They don't recognize Joseph, but Joseph knows it's them, and we've been going back and forth with them, um, how Joseph has basically been testing them to make sure that they've actually changed, and as we come to Genesis 44 this morning, we, by the time we finish this chapter, are going to be right on the brink of Joseph finally revealing his true identity to his brothers. But in this chapter, he has a final test of their character. He wants to know, have they really changed? Are they in the process of becoming different men? Let me read Genesis 44 for us. Then Joseph commanded the steward of his house, fill the men's sacks with food, as much as they can carry, and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack, and put my cup, the silver cup, In the mouth of the sack of the youngest, with his money for the grain. And he did as Joseph told him. As soon as the morning was light, the men were sent away with their donkeys. They had gone only a short distance from the city. Now Joseph said to his steward, Up, follow after the men, and when you overtake them, say to them, Why have you repaid evil for good? Is it not from this that my Lord drinks, and by this that he practiced divination? You have done evil in doing this. When he overtook them, he spoke to them these words. They said to him, Why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Behold, the money that we found in the mouths of your sacks we brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? Whichever of your servants is found with it shall die, and we also will be my Lord's servants. He said, let it be as you say, he who is found with it shall be my servant, and the rest of you shall be innocent. Then each man quickly lowered his sack to the ground, and each man opened his sack, and he searched, beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest, 
and the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes, and every man loaded his donkey, and they returned to the city. When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there. They fell before him to the ground. Joseph said to them, what deed is this that you have done? Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? And Judah said, what shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also in whose hand the cup has been found. But he said, far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. Then Judah went up to him and said, O my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ears, and let not your anger burn against your servant, for you are like Pharaoh himself. My Lord asked his servant, saying, Have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, We have a father, an old man, and a young brother, the child of his old age. His brother is dead, and he alone is left of his mother's children. And his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, bring him down to me, that I may set my eyes on him. We said to my Lord, the boy cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. Then you said to your servants, unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall not see my face again. When we went back to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord. And when our father said, go again, buy us a little food, we said, we cannot go down. If our younger brother goes with us, then we will go down. For we cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Then your servant, my father, said to us, You know that my wife bore me two sons. One left me, and I said, Surely he has been torn to pieces, and I have never seen him since. If you take this one also from me, and harm happens to him, you will bring down my gray hairs in evil to Sheol. Now, therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die, and your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my, to my father, saying, if I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now, therefore... Please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord, and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. Let me pray for us. Father, you are with your people through your word. You are also with your people through the Holy Spirit. So we pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would open your word to us this morning. Help us to step into this narrative to see you, redemption, and ourselves and our deep need for you. We pray that you would come and do this wherever we find ourselves this morning. You are resourceful. You are powerful. You are able to work redemption into our lives. So we look to you in Jesus' name, amen. So I'm the kind of person that tends to order the same food over and over again at food establishments that I frequent. I get the fact that it's boring, but it's too risky to not do that, right? You know, once you come across a food at a particular place that is 
really good. It's not even so much for me the risk involved of getting something that I would dislike. It's more about how much I like that one thing. And so I want to keep getting it. I want to keep ordering it. The fact of the matter is, is that when it really comes down to it, I'm afraid of change. Now, uh, about three weeks ago was a big moment for me. Uh, Three weeks ago, I went out uh, to eat with some guys from the neighborhood, and uh, I was set on ordering what I always order at this place. But I started sharing this with some of the guys, and they were saying to me, no, you need to order something different. Here's how it worked out. I ordered something different, but they all ordered the thing that I usually like to order. So I felt good about that. That felt a little safe to me. And by the way, I really liked what I ordered. So now when I go back to this place, I'm going to have two options. See, this is why it's not worth it. It just brings a dilemma into your life. But change is hard, isn't it? Change is hard when it comes to preferences in life, such as food. Change is hard when it comes to doing something different out of your your normal routine. But change is even harder when it comes to the internal aspect of our lives. And there's no way around it. Change is a part of the Christian faith. It's a quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer, uh, and Dietrich Bonhoeffer said this, the call to discipleship is a call to change. The call to discipleship is a call to change. That's scary. Scary in light of what I just shared. We, by nature, for the most part, don't like to change, uh, particularly when it comes to what's going on inside of our lives. Because in order to change when it comes to our interior life, we have to be aware of it. We have to practice self-reflection and assessment. And then we actually have to do the hard work of changing. And that is hard and it is scary. But as Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, the call of discipleship is ultimately a call to change. To follow Jesus, we have to take a long hard look inside of ourselves. Not just one time, but all the time. And on the one hand, that sounds really painful. Like, why would you want to follow Jesus if it involves nothing but taking a long, hard look at yourself and kind of being down on yourself? Well, that's an assumption that we've jumped to because Jesus doesn't want us to necessarily be down on ourselves. He wants us to be honest about ourselves so that we might find freedom and liberation in him. So as we walk through this passage together, what we're going to see is that God's mercy changes us from the inside out. God's mercy changes us from the inside out. And we've been seeing this already in this story. Uh, we, two weeks ago, we looked at the idea of severe mercy that sometimes uh, God shows in our lives. Last week, we looked at Um, how God's mercy leads us to repentance, particularly his kindness is the word that we used. And this morning, we're going to really focus in on this question. Who am I becoming? That's the question that I want you to ask yourself over the course of this sermon as we look at this passage. Who are you in the process of becoming? Because the call to discipleship is a call to change. God's mercy changes us from the inside out. So, who are you becoming? And what this means, we're, we're working from an, a, another assumption here, that in the Christian faith, being precedes doing. 
Being precedes doing. Our doing flows from who we are. It flows from our being. So uh, I think that's a helpful assumption to keep in mind. That's kind of what we're working with as we um, seek to answer this question, who am I becoming? We're going to look at two things, particularly, of how God's mercy changes us from the inside out. And what I want us to look at are the evidences of change. What are the evidences of change that we see here in Judah's life in particular that we can then translate to our lives? And I think we see two things that are evidences of change in Judah's life, repentance and love. Repentance and love. Let's talk about repentance. Look at verse 16. There's this moment in the scene where at this point, Judah is standing before his brother Joseph. Now, remember, for those of you who um, haven't been with us, Joseph is the brother that was sold into slavery by Judah and his other brothers. And they've been coming to Egypt. This is, um, their, their, this is their third time back to Egypt um, in the presence of Joseph. And as I said when I set up the scripture reading, um, they don't yet know it's Joseph. 20 years have passed since they sold him into slavery. So they don't know that this is Joseph, but Joseph knows that it is them. And so here we have Judah in the presence of Joseph once again. They've been brought back because what has happened? Well, Joseph, he keeps testing these guys. On the one hand, we might think, man, Joseph is brutal. He's relentless. He doesn't give up. He keeps testing them. When will the testing finally end? Well, the testing finally ends at the end of this chapter. But the test um, in this chapter is this, that they come for food. Um, In the previous chapter, we saw that there's this amazing expression of kindness that Joseph shows to his brothers. He invites them to this feast, and they eat and drink until they are content. And the scene picks up in the beginning of 44, where they go back with their grain to take back to their father. But get this, Joseph tells his steward um, to put their money back in their sacks again, but to also place Joseph's silver cup in Benjamin's bag. Joseph is setting his brothers up, particularly his brother Benjamin. You know, this, what is he doing? Why is he doing this stuff? It seems cruel. But whatever, this is the test. And so uh, they leave, and Joseph tells his steward, okay, now I want you to go after them. And I want you to catch up with them. And I want you to, to basically say to them, why did you do this? Why did you steal the, the, the cup? Why did you steal Joseph's possessions? And so he does that. He catches up with them. And think about this scene. Think about how the, the nervous energy and anxiety that must have been felt by this, these brothers. Because as far as they're concerned, they're innocent. And they are. They, they actually are innocent. So they're right in, in believing their innocence. Um, each and every one of them. And so you, I imagine this scene where they're all lined up and the steward is going from the oldest to the youngest, checking their sacks. And you would think that the brothers in that moment are standing there thinking, this is ridiculous. This is so silly. There's no cup in any of our sacks. But still, just imagine the nervous energy. Because I'm sure there was, uh, you know, some thinking along the lines of, well, man, did one of my brothers, without me seeing, take the cup? What if it actually is in one of our sacks? What will happen to us? Oh, no. And it goes from one to the next, to the next, to the next. And it's, you know, toward the end, they're probably feeling some relief. All right, we're good. None of us took it. And then it gets to the last one, the youngest Benjamin. And it's in his sack. 
How do they react? How do they respond? Verse 12, he searched, beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest, and the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes. They tore their clothes in response to this discovery. This is an act in ancient times in the Old Testament of grieving and mourning. This happens immediately. You know, they're suddenly overcome with, oh no. How has this happened? What has happened? And what is going to happen to us now? So they load up the donkeys and they return to the city. And that leads us to this moment in verse 16 that we we looked at, or that I read earlier. Judah says, what shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also, in whose hand the cup has been found. Basically, all the commentators that I read agreed that what Judah is referring to is not the fact that they possessed the cup. He's referring to their previous sin in the past of what they did to their brother Joseph in selling him into slavery because they're still confident in their innocence. In verse 14, it says, when Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there. They fell before him to the ground. Verse 15, Joseph said to them, what deed is this you have done? Do you not, or, yeah, Joseph, what deed is this that you have, you have done? Do you not know that a man like me can practice divination? So he's kind of playing them. You know, he's, they probably have heard that he's this wise, discerning man in Egypt that's been able to interpret dreams. And he's playing them. He's testing them. He's saying to them, you should have known that I would have been able to detect in my discernment that you have done this. But they're still confident in their innocence. And yet in verse 16, we have this confession, this confession of their sin. And we've seen this gradual change happening in the lives of the brothers that has been leading them to become more self-aware, more honest about their sin against God and their sin against their brother. And I think it comes to a culmination in here in verse 16. Judah finally says, He recognizes we've done something. We need to clear our consciences of how can we do it. We have guilt. Judah's come a long way. And it's really interesting that Judah is the one who is singled out and isolated in this section of the chapter. Verse 14, when Judah and his brothers, why all of a sudden is this about Judah? This is a new new dynamic here in the story of these brothers, But all of a sudden, Judah is isolated from the others. He's focused in on why. I think it's because we see the dramatic work of God's mercy and grace being expressed most clearly in Judah's life. Judah had a hard heart. Back in chapter 37, verse 26, that scene when the brothers sell Joseph into slavery, uh, they had thought first about just simply murdering Joseph. That's how deep their resentment and bitterness was toward Joseph. But Judah says in verse 26 of of chapter 37, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let not our hand be upon him for he is our brother, our own flesh. What a noble guy Judah is, huh? Let's not kill our brother. That would be really bad, guys. We don't want his blood on our hands. 
Let's sell him into slavery instead. Judah's heart is far from God. And ultimately, Judah is thinking about himself. Why is it that he doesn't want to kill Joseph? Well, maybe it's that he doesn't want the death of his brother to happen, but more so, it's about the blood on their hands. You know, he's probably thinking, can you imagine the guilt that we'll feel if we kill him? Let's figure out something else evil to do against him. This was Judah. This was the kind of guy that he was. Chapter 38, we get more insight. Um, We got more insight into the heart of Judah and his character. Um, That chapter begins with this line, that it happened at the time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. So at the beginning of 38, Judah is leaving the security uh, and protection of home to go in among a people that God had asked his people not to intermingle with. And he does so anyway, and it does not end well. We shouldn't be surprised. But Judah commits this wicked sin uh, in which he uh, basically sleeps with his daughter-in-law. And it's actually worse than that. We, we, we covered it a few weeks ago. You can go back and reread chapter 38 if you will. But this is the kind of guy that Judah is. And so that brings us to what is happening in this scene. In the past, Judah was the kind of guy that he wasn't afraid to speak up with an idea, but it was an idea that protected himself. It was an idea that expressed his self-centeredness. But him speaking up in this scene, it's totally different. He's not simply thinking about himself, and we see very clearly that he is repenting. He now has a soft heart. His heart is changing. And he's practicing a form of repentance, as we see in verse 16. What is repentance? We think of repentance a lot of times as simply turning away, confessing our sin. And repentance does involve that. But as I mentioned when I introduced the confession of sin this morning, uh, repentance, there are actually two sides of the same coin when it comes to repentance. One is the turning of way, but the other is the exercising of faith, the turning to Jesus. It's not enough to simply turn from our self-centeredness. We have to turn to Jesus in other-centeredness. We look to him as the one who covers our sin, who atones for it through his work on the cross. And as we place our faith in him, His righteousness, his record, his reputation becomes ours. That is the process. That is the whole picture in view when it comes to repentance. It's not enough to just simply turn from our sin because that begs the question, well, where are you going with it? In the Christian faith, repentance is turning from our sin and turning with it to Jesus for him to redeem it. Repentance is not a one-time thing. We often, I think, are mistaken about that uh, as well in our Christian lives. We think that, okay, I need to repent and believe to become a Christian, but the rest of the Christian life is about something else. The fact of the matter is, is that the whole of the Christian life is one of repentance and faith. How do we grow in intimacy with Jesus? How do we taste of and experience his newness? It's through regularly repenting of our sin and moving toward Jesus in faith. This is what Martin Luther, 
had in mind when he launched the Reformation with his 95 theses. The first theses, the first of them said basically this, that God wills that the whole of the Christian life be one of repentance and faith. This is what we're called to. Remember the Bonhoeffer quote, the call of discipleship is ultimately a call to change. How does that change take place within the Christian life? Through repentance and faith. In order to repent and exercise faith, we have to have self-awareness. We have to be able to identify the sin in our lives. And this is the big deal for uh, Judah at this point. He's grown in self-awareness. Those layers of his heart have been peeled back, as we talked about last week. God's mercy has reached him at the deepest, inner, the deepest places of his heart, and God is bringing his redemption to bear there, actually, concretely, practically, where Judah needs it the most. We've, we've been talking over the past few weeks of how this scares us. You know, we, we have all of these boundaries and walls that we erect uh, in front of our hearts so that nobody else can get in, and sometimes including Jesus. And as Christians, we know, well, Jesus knows it, but be honest, we still establish these walls thinking we can keep him out, right? And we think to ourselves, if I don't think about it, then I don't have to worry about Jesus uh, getting involved in it. Be less messy that way. But that is a life of slavery, it's a life of, uh, characterized by an inability to love God well and to love others well, as we're going to talk about in a moment. But repentance is key. Where do you need to repent this morning? And remember, repentance is turning from our sin, but going to Jesus with it. Where do you need to repent this morning? As you think about that sum, let me remind you, that I said this too when I introduced the confession of sin. Repentance is not meant to be um, a, a, a form of slavery. It's actually meant to be a form of freedom. God in his goodness to us gives us this practice of repentance and faith so that we can actually be drawn out of ourselves to trust Jesus and to receive his work on our behalf, his work in place of our bad work that we've brought to the table. So where do you need to repent? Where do you need to experience the mercy of God so that you might change from the inside out? And that's what ultimately repentance is all about in the Christian faith, change from the inside out. The call to repentance is not a call to go home and look at the sins in your life and say, okay, I'm going to work really hard to stop this sin. I'm going to work really hard uh, to transform my character and become more noble and virtuous. That does not work. In fact, if that is your strategy, you're actually where Judah was and his brothers were in previous chapters, trying to figure out how to deal and cope with this horrible sin that they've committed on their own. And it's been a path of slavery for them of going deeper and deeper into darkness and brokenness and not having anywhere to go with it. Repentance is about freedom. Repentance is about joy. Now, I know that this is counterintuitive, and maybe it's very different from what you have grown accustomed to hearing in the context of church, but the reality is, is that repentance is a gift from God. 
Scripture actually says that repentance is a gift. And it's meant for our flourishing, for our joy, for our freedom, so that we might, as I've been saying, learn to step out of trust of ourselves and trust Jesus. So repentance is the first evidence of change that we see in Judah's life here in this chapter. The second is love. And this is really beautiful. Verses 32 and 34, look at those with me. So this is after Judah has taken the initiative. And this is what's so cool about it, connecting this back to the repentance. We saw back in chapter 37 when the brothers were considering uh, murdering their Joseph, Judah comes up with the idea of, no, let's not murder him, let's, um, th- let's sell him into slavery. Well, here uh, we have Judah coming up with another idea, but this is a redemptive idea, and it's an idea that is rooted in his actual real repentance. And so Joseph um, basically responds to Judah's initial plea that, you know, please uh, let my brother um, let my brother go, keep me or my other brothers here. But whatever you do, Benjamin has to go back to our father. Because, why? Jacob, the father, still hasn't learned that lesson about fav- um, having favorites among his sons. And so Judah uh, basically approaches Joseph, or, uh, Joseph and says, can I please have a word with you? Don't be angry with me. And so Judah, it's amazing the, uh, the initiative that he's taking here and the confidence with which he's doing it. And we're going to see that this is actually rooted in love of the other, not himself or concern about himself. So he, said, he basically rehearses the story to Joseph. Here, you know, basically, Joseph, you know what's happened um, prior to this. You know, we came for food, we went back, and Our father told us that we can't go back. You told us to bring Benjamin with us, but when we went and told our father that, he said, you cannot take your brother. He's too um, important to me. But Judah, in conversation with his father, said, look, we're not going back to get more food unless you uh, let Benjamin come because we're not going to face that guy in Egypt and not having Benjamin with us. So Joseph finally, or Jacob finally gives in. There's too many J names in this going on right now. Um, Jacob finally gives in and says, fine, you can take Benjamin, but basically if he doesn't return, I'm going to be dead. I'm going to be overcome with grief. I'm going to be a dead man, essentially. And so Judah rehearses all of this for Joseph. And that brings us to uh, verses 32 through 34. For your servant, this is Judah talking, became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, if I do not bring him back to you, Then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord, and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. In this chapter, the word father is used 14 times. It's very clear that Judah loves his father. And this is a dramatic change in Judah's life because we've seen how Judah has been a man who cared only about himself. And now, in a moment of desperation, he's showing that he cares more about the other than himself. 
This is one of the longest recorded speeches in Genesis. This impassioned plea from Judah to Joseph. Judah essentially puts his own life on the line. This is a remarkable transformation. This is a remarkable change in Judah's life. This is the guy who said, let's sell our brother into slavery. We don't want to kill him because that's too, we don't want that blood on us. I can't live with that guilt and shame, but let's sell him into, he, he, he didn't care about his brother. He didn't care about his father because they came back to the father with this lie that guess what? We have such horrible news. Our brother, the one that you love the most was torn about, torn apart by animals. And to this day, to this moment, not this day that we're in now, but to the day of which we're at in this passage, Joseph, Jacob still believes that's what happened to Joseph. And so he's still living under the lie that his brothers, that his sons have told him. Judah never cared about anyone but himself. And yet we see transformation in this chapter. The love that he has for his father and even for his brother Benjamin. Judah has grown into a man of noble character. This should encourage us. You know, I, I don't know what's going on in your life right now. It could be that you um, are maybe really acutely aware of your deficiencies. Maybe you're acutely aware of the fact that you, your character isn't so noble. Maybe it's a lifestyle thing. Maybe it's a one-time thing you did this past week. But guess what? God's mercy is able to change you from the inside out. If God's mercy can change Judah, God's mercy can change you and me. That's how powerful God's mercy is. God's mercy gets into the depths of our hearts where it's the most dark, where it's the most broken, where it's the most ugly, and he brings about transformation and change. This is the power of God. It's not our power to manage our sin. It's not our ability to practice behavior modification. It's God's power in his grace, mercy, and kindness to change us from the inside out as we practice repentance and faith and surrender our lives to him. Bruce Waltke, one commentator on this passage, said this, Judah's speech in every respect brings the climax to the suspense, both with regard to the brother's despair and to Joseph's inner emotion. The seething of his emotion coincides precisely with the inner end of the test of the brothers, for Judah's words had shown that the brothers had changed. They obviously intend to treat Rachel's younger son, Benjamin, quite different from the way in which they had formerly treated the elder son. This is the moment for Joseph in which he realizes they've changed. They're different men. Because now they are refusing to do to Benjamin what they did to me. Judah is acting out of love for the other. Discipleship is ultimately a call to change, right? Jesus calls us to change. What is the clearest way, or let's put it this way, what ultimately is the result of change in our lives? Answer, love. It's love. Love for God and love for others. If you want to measure the change in your lives, the transformation that's happening in your lives, measure it by your ability to love God and others. 
And the way that we grow in our love for God and others is by ultimately uh, encountering and experiencing God's love for us on a daily basis. Because as we practice repentance and faith, we're practicing good self-awareness. We're in touch with our own sin. We're in touch with the ugliness of our hearts. And yet God is loving us there. That's, that's the amazing thing about the gospel. You know, sometimes when we repent of our sin, you know, I wonder if maybe we're thinking of, all right, God loves me, you know, after this, this process of repentance and I begin living differently. That's when his love kicks in. No, God loves you in that moment, in that very specific moment in which you are up against the ugliness of your heart, all of your sin and how it's all tangled up and it's impacting you and others. God loves you there in a way that no other person does or can love you. That is powerful. That contains the ability to change us from the inside out. It's mercy. And so our love for God and our love for others are ultimately rooted in his love for us. But that's how we measure our spiritual growth. That's how we measure change and transformation in our lives. Are we growing in our ability to love God and to love others? Graham Tomlin in his book, The Provocative Church, says, a reorientation of our lives toward learning to love God and learning to love people rather than the self-indulgent and self-oriented lives we're used to is basically the Christian faith. And this is what Jesus taught, right? Think of all of the times in which Jesus basically brought it back to, here are the two greatest commands. This is what it's all about, love God and love your neighbor. But we can't do that well if we're not honestly uh, examining our own sin. Because what happens? We judge others too harshly. We hold the sins of others against them, don't we? That's what happens. Now, I'm, I'm not talking about speaking truth into the lives of other people, but I'm talking about only seeing them through the lens of their sin. That's something totally different. We only do that when we are not self-aware of our own sin. But you see, the more that we're aware of our sin and its ugliness and how it impacts others, we have a a, a fuller view of the other. And that gives us a, a newfound ability to love them because we're not holding their sin against them any longer. You could ask this question of yourself. Are you a safe person to be around? This is one way of measuring your love for others. If you were to interview people in your lives, would they say that you are a safe person to be around? What happens when people bring criticism against you? What happens when you are in moments of hardship and difficulty where maybe life is not going the way that you had planned it to to go? What would others say about you? What is it like to be around you? Are you a safe person to be around? And as we begin to wrap this up, I want to come back to something we talked about last week. At the end of the day, what was it that prevented Judah and his brothers from loving God and loving um, others well? Insecurity, rooted in sin. Insecurity. Why did they want to kill Joseph in the first place And then come up with a plan to sell him into slavery because they despised him. They resented him. 
They were jealous and envious of him. And it had nothing, yeah, sure, Joseph brought his sins to the table. But it's also always about ourselves. And these brothers allowed jealousy to overtake them because of their insecurity. That's why we have to keep coming back to resting in the love of God for us. Because the love of God heals all of our insecurities. Because it's in the presence of God, because of what Jesus has done for us in the cross, on the cross, in taking our sins upon himself, you know, we've been talking about this, completely naked and vulnerable there on the cross, taking upon our sins as an innocent one upon himself. It's because of that and our trust in that that we're able to remain safely in the presence of God. And we're able to be overwhelmed by his love for us. We have nothing to hide. It's all out there in the open on Jesus on the cross. The Father knows about it, and he still loves you deeply. That heals your insecurities. You don't need the acceptance, ultimately, and approval of others, because it is yours in Jesus. And that powerfully enables you to love others well. Because you don't have to live out of and operate out of your insecurities anymore. You don't have to hold the sins of others against them unfairly. But you can view all of this, your own heart and the other person through the lens of Jesus and his work on our behalf. Ultimately, through God's mercy that changes us from the inside out. Beginning in the next chapter, we're going to see how God has been orchestrating all of this to save this family from famine. But God is saving them from so much more than a famine. God is saving their very spiritual lives. He's transforming their character. He's making them new. He's forming them into something that they never thought they could be, I'm sure. And this change prefigures what happens to our hearts in Jesus coming in the New Testament. Because not only did Jesus accomplish that work of redemption on the cross, but we also, Paul says it wonderfully in Colossians, Christ in us. Christ is in us through his Holy Spirit. He is at work in us to remove our insecurities, to give us a a warmer feeling and experience of God's love, and to give us ultimately the power to love others well. So I want to leave us with this question. So much we're oriented around, what must I do? You know, we all have our to-do lists, and they're important. But that's how we wake up in the morning, don't we? Oh, man, what must I do? I got I to start on, on this list. I got to do this. I got to do the other thing. And then when it comes to the sin in our lives, what, if you're like me, what is so often, unfortunately, your first step? What must I do? How do I make it right? But what if we learn to be a people who ask not that question so much, but the question of, who am I becoming? Who am I becoming? Is God's mercy changing me from the inside out? Because the inside out means that you're doing differently if you're being changed. That's the point of the gospel, that God changes us from the inside out. And so we live differently. We love differently. We repent more because of what God is doing in our internal lives. So what if we began to ask the question 
Not so much, what do I do? Or what am I doing? But who am I? And who am I in the process of becoming? Let's pray and ask for God's help in this. Father, it is one thing to hear this message with our ears. It's been one thing for me to study your word this week, but it's a completely other thing to actually live this out and live in light of it. We need your mercy for that. We need your help. So I pray for your spirit to come in its fullness in our lives. I pray that you would point us to Jesus and what he's done for us. And I I pray for your help and your grace to change our character, to grow us into people who are noble and virtuous. You are able to do this through your power and your grace. And Father, I pray that you would give us the joy of being able to see glimpses of this, being able to examine and reflect on our lives and to be able to say, hey, you know what? I've actually grown. I've grown in my ability to love God and love others. Father, please give us that gift and joy as a church and individually. We pray in Christ's name, amen.